This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Well, we're going to continue our study in the Psalms of Ascent in Psalm 130, if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. While you're turning there, I've recently been intrigued by these videos that, that guys have put together where, uh, using really incredible CGI, they have recreated a, a real-time uh, picture of what it looked like for the Titanic to sink. It's really interesting. Through the CGI, I mean, the whole ordeal only took about two and a half hours, but they're, they're able to show cutaways and, and how different parts failed at different times and how that affected different parts of the people that were on the boat. They show why the lifeboats you know, were set off barely half full. But the reason I bring that up is because all of these documentaries point out a fact that they had to violate, a fact about the event that they had to violate simply so you could see what was going on. You see, they all admit that they had to make it look like there was a lot more light than there actually was. Simply so you could see what was happening. When in reality, the night the Titanic sank, it was a new moon, and a good deal of the event took place in total darkness. In fact, many of the survivors remarked about how one of the scariest parts of the whole thing was how much of it took place in the pitch black after the lights went out on the boat. They talk about being able to hear people in the water but not see them, even if they were right next to the lifeboats. They talk about waiting for four hours in the pitch black for help to come. But that's just the survivors. You see, of the 2,240 passengers that night, 1,496 of them went down with the ship two and a half miles to the bottom of the ocean. And I can't help but wonder, how long did some of the 1,496 victims survive in pitch darkness as they were pulled down in the water before they were either crushed or drowned by the weight of the deep sea? How many of you are holding your breath just thinking about it? Now, you might be thinking, geez, Grant, it's kind of a morbid thought for a Sunday morning. And you'd be right. It is, but here's the thing. The psalmist says in verse 1, I want you to listen to his desperation. Notice the punctuation. Out of the depths I cry to you. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, we've heard the psalmist cry out before in our study of the Psalms of Ascent. In Psalm 120 and 21, he cried out over the strain of living in the world. In Psalm 123, he cried out about the contempt and the scorn he was being shorn, shown by, by others. In Psalm 126, he cried out for restoration from tears and weeping and heartache. In Psalm 129, he cried out for relief from the affliction he was receiving from his enemies. But Psalm 130 is different. 
You see, the surprise of Psalm 130 is not that the psalmist is crying out. We've heard that before. No, the surprise of Psalm 130 is that the psalmist is now crying out because of his own sin. How do I know he's crying out because of his own sin? Well, look at verse 3. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So, yes, thinking about the victims of the Titanic helplessly sinking into the inky black abyss of the ocean is a bit morbid for a Sunday morning. But I can't think of a much better illustration of the reality of our sin. Because our sin is very much like being trapped inside a 52-ton weight that's being pulled to the bottom of the ocean. We're helpless to escape sin's descent into the heavy black depths of condemnation. The 19th century preacher W.S. Plummer said it this way. He said it well when he said, Sin has dug every grave, established every hospital, and built every prison including hell itself. Which is why this morning I want to call you to the same thing the psalmist was calling Israel. You see, while the psalm begins with him crying out from the Lord to the Lord from the depths, look where it ends, the beginning of verse 7. He begins crying out from the depths, and in the end he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. So this morning I want to convince you to do the same thing, Cedar Springs Church. Hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord is what I want you to see this morning. But how do we get there? Well, first, let's look in verse 3 and 4. The psalmist calls Israel to hope in the Lord because in Him is forgiveness. He calls Israel to hope in the Lord because in Him is forgiveness. Verse 3, he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. Now that word mark there, that's like, if you were to make a detailed account, if you were to take inventory, something like that, it's a very detailed understanding of something. He says, if you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The implication being no one. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, we don't know why or when this psalm was written, but many scholars think it was probably written during the exile, when, when Judah was in exile in Babylon, remember? God told Judah, you guys better cut it out, stop your idolatry, stop your sins, repent, or I'm going to bring in Babylon. Israel didn't. Babylon came. They got shipped off. It wasn't pretty. Remember that? It's like a daddy spanking on a national level. Now, we don't know that for sure. We don't know that's how that happened. But let's just assume for a minute that's when it was written and why it was written. That's a pretty good assumption. Picture the events that would have led this psalmist to write this psalm. Imagine the heartache of losing your mother or father, sister or brother, husband or wife, when the Babylonians came and sacked Jerusalem. Hear the screams of women being brutalized, children being pulled from the arms of their mothers. And when all of that was finally finished, you're chained together with all the other survivors and marched 500 miles to a foreign land where you're immediately enslaved. That's the beginning. But then imagine some years later, you're sitting there in Babylon remembering your family. 
You're, you're reminiscing about the, the, the smile of your wife, your husband's embrace, your child's laughter, that at this point is just an echo in your mind. And it lands on you. The full weight of the truth that they died because of your sin. It was your idolatry that brought the Babylonians to Jerusalem. It was your idolatry that brought God's judgment. It was your sin and the sin of those around you that caused so much death and heartache and loss. And the worst thing about it is, is there is absolutely nothing that you can do to go back and fix it. Nothing. There isn't even a sacrifice in the Old Testament that you could offer to make up for that, if you were in Jerusalem, but you're not. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you're there this morning. You've had one of those moments of reckoning where you counted the cost of your sin and found yourself being crushed by its weight. Like the psalmist helplessly sinking into the murky darkness of that guilt. Where the only thing to do is cry out. Hear my cries for mercy, O Lord. You know, before sonar, sailors used to use what was called a sounding line to figure out the depth of the water that they were in. A sounding line was just a rope with a weight on one end, and then they had usually knots or marks on the rope every six feet, and every six feet marked a fathom. So the sailor would drop the weight into the water, and the, uh, the, as the knots slid through their fingers and it slipped down, they would count the fathoms, one fathom, two fathom, three fathom to see how deep the water is until it hit the bottom. I say that because whether you're here this morning and you believe in Jesus Christ or if you are here this morning and you do not, it doesn't matter. I want to tell you one of the most liberating things that you can do. Ironically, one of the best things that you can do. You ready? One of the most freeing things that you can do is plumb the depths of your sin. Plumb the depths of your sin. Drop that rope into the pitch black water of your sin and watch as the knots slip through your fingers one after one. One fathom, two fathoms, three fathoms. Feel the unease as you near the end of that long rope and you still have not hit bottom, and you begin to reckon the crushing depth of the abyss of the sin beneath you. Because listen, the reason that is so freeing is because the deeper you chase your sin, the more knots that slip through your, your fingers, the only thing you will find is God's grace going deeper still. The deeper you find yourself in the crushing depths of your transgression, the louder Scripture will cry out, But God. The louder the words of this psalmist will ring out, But with God there is forgiveness of sin. 
And, and how do you know you're doing this? How do you know if you're actually making progress on that track? How do you know when you're plumbing the depths of your sin and hearing the grace of God grow louder and louder? How do you know if you're doing that? Well, look at the second half of verse 4. The psalmist says, But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Charles Spurgeon said, No one fears the Lord like those who have experienced His forgiving love. Gratitude for pardon produces far more fear and reverence of God than all the dread that is inspired by punishment. If the Lord were to execute justice upon all, there would be none left to fear Him. Because if all were under apprehension of His deserved wrath, despair would harden them against fearing Him. He says, so it is grace which leads the way to a holy regard of God and a fear of grieving Him. Now, now in the context of the Old Testament, what, what Spurgeon is tapping into here is that word fear, it has this enlarged meaning. In the Old Testament, fear is not just a state of being. It's not, a, a not, not just how you feel. You see, in the Old Testament, fear, it's a, it's a reverence or an awe that is always marked by action. It's always shown by, by, by action. In other words, we could read verse 4 like this, But with you there is forgiveness, that in reverence you may be loved and worshipped and obeyed. Which means this, how do you know you're growing in your understanding of the depths from which God has forgiven you? How do you know you're doing that? Well, your desire to forgive and to love and to be patient with others is directly proportional to the awe or the reverence you have for what God's done for you. In other words, if you want to know whether or not you're really growing in your comprehension of the depth of, of your rescue from darkness, then think of it this way. How you forgive others is directly proportional to how much you revere God's forgiveness of you. How you love others reflects your appreciation for God's love for you. How patient you are with others reflects your awe of how patient God has been with you. And so on and so on. Brothers and sisters, plumb the depths of your sin this morning. Cry out to the Lord for them. And hope in the Lord, Cedar Springs Church, because in Him and in Him alone is forgiveness, period. Can we be honest for a minute? Don't you sometimes feel like you cry out to the Lord and nothing happens? Don't you feel like you're in the midst of pain? You're in the midst of grief? You're in the midst of guilt? You're in the midst of shame and you cry out to the Lord? Sometimes nothing happens. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I cry out for mercy from the depths of pain, I kind of mean now. 
right? So how do I hope in the Lord when sometimes he seems so slow to fix things? Well, notice the psalmist is in the exact same place. Look at verse 5. Immediately following this cry out to the Lord, he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for morning. More than the watchmen for the morning. In other words, listen, the, the psalmist is describing the same experience that you and I have so often. He's cried out from the depths, yet he's waiting because he's not been immediately rescued. So, so in that waiting, he amplifies his intense longing for his, for his personal experience of salvation to, to finally match that which he knows God has promised. But he's not there yet. Which is why he emphasizes his point with this idea of the watchman. You see, back then, if, 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 if you were going to be attacked, it usually happened at night, and the watchmen were the first to die. And so the point that he's making is that the night watchman yearned for those first rays of sunlight in the morning that said, you made it to another day. But how does the psalmist do that? How does he wait when, when, when that waiting is filled with so much longing? Well, the same way we should. Meaning not only do we hope in the Lord because in Him is forgiveness, that's one, but two, verse 5 calls us to hope in the Lord by waiting in His Word. By waiting in His Word. Look at verse 5 again. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and while I'm waiting, His, His word is what keeps my hope alive. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word, I hope. And, and why is this especially important today? Why is this idea of, of waiting in His word so important today. Why is it so important to keep our hope alive by waiting in His Word? Let me give you one simple example. When you click your mouse or tap your phone, how many seconds need go by before you want to chuck that thing out the window because nothing happened? Two, three? And, and, and forget it. If that happens like two or three times, this is a piece of garbage. I need a new one. Right? Or... Or what about the progression of social media? Why did YouTube start out with back in the old days where it just had a 10-minute maximum? And then, and then Twitter came out with a 280-character maximum. Until today, the average TikTok is 15 seconds long. Why have we followed that, that pattern? Well, the reason waiting in the Lord... Waiting in His Word is so important is this. We live in a culture where anything but immediate gratification is often seen as failure. We live in a culture where anything but immediate gratification is often seen as failure. 
But God's word is where we find the evidence. It's where we find the proof that we can hope in the Lord because he does keep his promises, even if we have to wait. Like even though the Lord heard the psalmist's cries for help, he didn't fix it right away. But his word says he had a plan. In fact, Jeremiah 29, 11 tells us that even in the midst of the, the pain and the heartache of that exile, that the plan of the Lord was good. In fact, Scripture tells us, listen, when this psalmist says, I wait in the Lord, Scripture tells us 400 years later, God's people were still waiting for the same thing this psalmist was promised. So when like a day goes by or a week goes by and you're like, God, why won't you relieve me? 400 years later, and Luke chapter 2 verse 25 says this, Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and, a and for glory to your people Israel. And sure enough, the child Simeon had been waiting for did exactly what God promised he would. The Bible tell us, tells us he was and, and is still a light in the darkness of this world. Just like he promised, Jesus told unclean people who were immersed in the darkness of their iniquity, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Until one day, until one day he finally revealed to the universe how the forgiveness he promised this psalmist would come. When he, when he climbed up on that cross and died to face the wrath of God on behalf of anyone who would believe in him. In fact, Paul later in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 said, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. How did he do that? How did He deliver us from the domain of darkness? Through the redemption and the forgiveness of sins we have in Jesus Christ. This is how we hope in the Lord, Cedar Springs Church. We hope in the Lord by waiting in His Word. We hope in the Lord by mining the depth and the breadth of Scripture for His promises that He's already kept. Like the promise He made to Adam and Eve to crush the head of the serpent. Like the promise He made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make them a great nation and bless the world through them. Like the promise He made to David to make His throne an everlasting throne, a throne on which the, the King of Heaven would eventually sit for eternity. All promises kept among countless others. 
When we find ourselves in the depth of remorse and guilt, brothers and sisters, we hope in the Lord by waiting in the promises of His Word, all of which are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Promises that assure us He will answer our cries. Because what will that answer be? What do His kept promises prove to us His answer will be? What will those who hope in the Lord by waiting in His Word find on that day He fulfills them? Well, verse 7 and 8 tell us. The psalmist says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Why? Because with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His Iniquities. In other words, Cedar Springs Church, hope in the Lord by waiting in His Word because His Word tells us about His steadfast love. We hope in the Lord by waiting in His Word because His Word tells us about His steadfast love. Not His momentary love. Not His conditional love. Not His qualified love. His steadfast love. His chesed It's that love He showed Israel when He brought them out of Egypt, knowing full well they were going to turn from Him in weeks. It's that love He showed David when He made a covenant with him, knowing David was going to be an adulterer and a murderer. It's that love that isn't dependent on our worth or our performance, thank God. No, it's that eternal, perfect love that's based on God's promises and His faithfulness to keep them. But not only do we hope in the Lord because of His steadfast love, but look, we hope in the Lord by waiting in His Word because His Word also tells us about His plentiful redemption. His plentiful redemption. Not His prorated redemption. Not His adequate redemption. Not even His satisfactory or sufficient redemption. No, His plentiful redemption. Listen, it's His redemption that exceeds your ability to sin. It's His redemption that keeps overflowing after your need of it has been exhausted. It's it's His redemption that's like filling a swimming pool with the ocean. Listen, brothers and sisters, I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. Most of us understand that because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we've escaped God's wrath. We understand this. But sometimes we're not so sure we've escaped His disappointment. We're not so sure we're free of his frustration and dissatisfaction. I mean, sure, I won't go to hell, but that doesn't mean God's not disappointed with me sometimes, right? Friend, listen when I say this. Please don't think so little of Jesus Christ. Hope in the Lord, because in him... You have plentiful redemption. 
Which is why the psalmist says in verse 8 that your God will redeem you from all of your iniquity. Even the iniquity you are absolutely certain you're not going to do tomorrow. Listen, even the iniquity you hold against yourself doesn't stand a chance of overpowering God's steadfast love for you. That sin you think can't be forgiven doesn't stand a chance against Jesus Christ on the cross. That sin that you can't seem to let go of doesn't stand a chance in the face of the righteousness that Jesus imparted to you on the cross. So listen, Cedar Springs Church, as the writer of Hebrews said at the end of chapter 10, let that truth, the truth that in Christ you have plentiful redemption, let that truth be your confidence in the darkness of this world. Let let that be your endurance in the depths of your sorrow and guilt. Let the truth of your, your plentiful redemption be the reason you don't shrink back, but have faith and are preserved. In other words, hope in the Lord, Cedar Springs Church. Hope in the Lord by waiting in His Word, because His Word tells us about the plentiful redemption that can only be found through His steadfast love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank You for the gift of Your Word. And we praise and we glorify You. We worship You, Father. Because of who You are, because of Your steadfast love, because of Your plentiful redemption, Lord, I pray that you would bring each and every one of us to a new understanding of the depths of our sin, of the crushing weight of our violations against your commands. Not so that we can walk around looking at our toes, but so that we can walk around boasting and glorifying and rejoicing in the grace that we have through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, show us anew what you have accomplished through him, that you would be more glorified in our lives. Father, all of this hope that we have is only through our Savior. And so it is in his name that we pray. Amen.